Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Visual Politics Podcast. In this one, we're looking at, uh, this is a, an audio version of a video that went out originally on our YouTube channel back on the 9th of July, 2019. It's called, the title on YouTube was, Uzbekistan, the most out-of-the-way country in the world. Yeah, it's obviously all about Uzbekistan. Uh, I'm going to jump in as always and explain anything or do any quotes and stuff like that um, just to make it a bit more audio accessible because I know sometimes the videos, they have chart moments and stuff like that. So I'll be back and let's just get into it. It's one of the most obscure, forgotten, and unknown countries in the world. Want to test this? Allow me to ask you three questions. One, have you ever heard of Uzbekistan? Two, would you know where to find it on a map? And three, could you name its capital? If you answered all three questions correctly, congratulations, you're an expert in international geography. If not, don't worry, it's not unusual, and today you'll have the chance to discover many more curious facts, because, dear viewers, today on Visual Politic, we're talking about Uzbekistan. It may not be very popular with tourists, but with more than 30 million inhabitants, Uzbekistan is the most populous country in Central Asia. It's also incredibly young. That's young in both senses of the word, not only because one out of every three inhabitants is under the age of 14, but also because the country was part of the former Soviet Union, so modern Uzbekistan is only 28 years old. And viewer, it's a remote country. It's so isolated from the rest of the world that on top of having no access to the sea like Liechtenstein, it's the only country on the entire planet that is surrounded by countries that don't have access to the sea either. And its neighbors, they're pretty obscure too. Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and Afghanistan. Well, I suppose the last one there is very well known, but not for good reasons. Anyway, as you can see, if you want to have an adventure in the 21st century, typical of an explorer, get away from the known world and feel like David Livingston or even Marco Polo, then you could go to Uzbekistan. But folks, obviously this isn't a travel ad, so here's a question. Why on earth do you think we're talking about Uzbekistan on visual politic? Any ideas? Well, what if I told you that this country is at an interesting crossroads? See, Uzbekistan is a country roughly the size of California, but it's only got 1.5% of California's GDP. It's a country where only one in every three inhabitants lives in a city, and it has to make a very important decision. It needs to decide whether to commit itself to a full reform program that will set it on a path to becoming a 21st century economy once and for all, or alternatively, retreat back into obscurity from the rest of the world. And what can I say? Here on this channel, well, we love this sort of thing. In this video, we're going to see what's happening in Uzbekistan, but first we need to introduce you to a leading character. So, have you heard of Islam Karimov? Well, listen up. Heavy hand, full pockets. Sometimes everything changes, and yet things remain practically the same. And that's exactly what happened in Uzbekistan in 1991, when the country declared its independence from the crumbling Soviet Union. At that time, the man on the screen now, Islam Karimov, was the general secretary of the Communist Party in Uzbekistan, as well as the president of the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic. And of course, if he had all the power, why should he let any of it go? And that's the question Karimov must have asked himself, and not surprisingly, well, he decided not to. <laughs> On the 
On September 1, 1991, when it wasn't yet clear if the Soviet Union would end up disintegrating, Karimov saw his opportunity and declared the independence of Uzbekistan. On December 29 of that same year, elections were held. They were so fraudulent that they would make even Nicolas Maduro look like a Democrat. Karimov got 88% of the votes, and from then on, you know what? Well, the results they kept on improving. Asimov managed to maintain a suspiciously high percentage of the votes in subsequent elections. He only needed to make a call to the electoral board and dictate the results of the elections, all before they were even held, of course. Once that was done, the deal, it was sealed. Shown on the screen now is a bar chart from Wikipedia of Islam Karimov's results in presidential elections and referendums. In the 1991 presidential election, he got 87.1% of the vote. In 2000, it was 95.7. 2007 was 90.76. And in 2015, it was 90.39%. For the referendums in 95 and 02, he got 99.6 and 91.78% respectively. The upshot, folks, is that during his 25 long years in power, Islam Karimov became the master of Uzbekistan. He was one of the most ruthless tyrants on the planet, a guy who had no qualms saying something publicly like this. I'm prepared to rip off the heads of 200 people to sacrifice their lives in order to preserve peace and calm in the republic. Karimov oversaw truly terrible human rights abuses for over 25 years as the Uzbek president, Hugh Williamson, Human Rights Watch. During his years in power, Uzbek media censorship was one of the strictest in the world. Arrests and convictions of journalists and social and political activists were an everyday event, and the police and secret service used torture as part of their normal protocol. As a result, nobody in Uzbekistan dared to speak ill of the president. In addition, Karimov regularly used expropriation as a mechanism to consolidate his power. Yeah, sorry, Hugo Chavez, you weren't an innovator in that field. You were kind of more like an apprentice. He also maintained a lot of the economic policies that he had learned during the Soviet era. Policies such as currency controls, completely artificial official exchange rates, a huge amount of state interference in the economy, and more and more stuff like that. Furthermore, he increased the country's isolation by having terrible relationships with most of Uzbekistan's neighbors. All this explains why, under his rule, the majority of the population was poor, seriously poor, even though Uzbekistan is rich in hydrocarbons and mineral resources. For example, it has the third largest gold reserves in the world. By the way, we can't give you poverty statistics because the Uzbek government officially determined by law that there is no poverty in the country. And if it doesn't exist, well, then of course it can't be measured. Give you an idea though, consider that the average salary is $225 per month for jobs that are paid according to the official regulations. And of course, for under the table jobs, it's even lower. And as you can imagine, Karimov's family and in a circle, they've accumulated an immense fortune. Karimov's own daughters have visited the most glamorous places in the world, have shared experiences with Hollywood A-listers, have released albums, jewelry lines, perfumes. They've just done whatever they want, really. But folks, perhaps the best way to see how immensely tyrannical, despotic, and autocratic Karimov's government was is by taking a look at what was happening in the cotton sector. This is traditionally the most important economic activity in the country. This 
is because Uzbekistan is actually one of the largest cotton producers in the world. So can you imagine a country where every year the leader enslaves a very significant percentage of the population to work for him? And no, don't be fooled, this time we aren't talking about taxes, we're talking about forced labor. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Uzbekistan. Eyes like burning coals, a kind each year, between September and November, to collect the cotton harvest, the government mobilizes between 1 and 2 million people in virtual slavery conditions. To avoid going, you had to send someone else in your place or face the consequences. Most were public servants, such as doctors and teachers, or workers from companies that were contracted by the government. Yep, you heard that right. In fact, a lot of hospitals were left practically without doctors because the government had sent them to pick cotton. You come to work with all the makeup, wearing nice clothes, good shoes, and the polyclinic director runs and says, I need 40 people in the field. The bus is outside. Hurry, hurry. Dr. Kidoyatova to the New York Times. Cotton is mandatory for everyone. The government gave orders to pick, and you will not go against these orders. If I refuse, they will fire me. We would lose the bread we eat. An Uzbek school teacher. And that's not the worst of it. For many years, a lot of these workers were children who had stopped going to school in order to pick cotton for the government. The system, it worked like this. The farmers received free labor and then sold the cotton to the government at a very low price. Then the government sold it to textile companies or exported it to produce clothes all over the world at a price far greater than what they paid the farmers. In that way, cotton became one of the largest sources of government revenue. Anyway, as you can see, Garimov, he didn't fool around. Perhaps another example of how despotic and authoritarian Karimov was can be found in how he treated his own daughter. See, Karimova was, so to speak, his favorite daughter. There was even speculation that she would be his heir. She lived life to the fullest, surrounded by luxuries and celebrities, and was very popular among jet-setters. Among her many activities, she was even once ambassador to Spain. Well, it turns out that Karimova caused a huge problem for the Uzbek governments because she had been dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars for international companies in exchange for false concessions in Uzbekistan. And then to top it off, she argued with and publicly confronted her mother and brother. And, well, that was simply too much. One fine day, Karimov sent the secret police to his daughter's house with a mission typical of Hollywood movies. Dressed in black, they assaulted Karimova's house, throwing themselves from helicopters with ropes, caught her, and they locked her in a room in her mansion. Karimova, one of the richest women in the world, never saw her father again, and nobody has seen her in public since. We know that she's been transferred to an Uzbek prison. The trial that condemned her was held in her own kitchen. As I said before, Karimov, he does not fool around. Surprised? Well, despite all of this, the truth is that Karimov was a good ally of the West, especially the United States. And probably there we need to hold up a second, because, I mean, how could Western countries ally themselves with such a tyrant? Well, let's just say there are two very compelling reasons. On the one hand, Uzbekistan is a predominantly Muslim country. Despite this, Karimov's government was strongly opposed to radical Islamists and has persecuted them with the same heavy hands with which it kept its people subjugated. Well, probably an even heavier hand, actually. Evidently, Karimov didn't take this line due to personal conviction, religious tolerance, or to defend personal liberties, but because radical Islamism represented a direct threat to his power. 
On the other hand, Uzbekistan has a border with Afghanistan, and that's something that the United States, after Afghanistan's invasion, could really use. In fact, the Pentagon installed an airbase in the south of the country in exchange for, you guessed it, a financial donation to Karimov's regime. In 2002 alone, the Uzbek government received 500 million US dollars. You know, normal international politics. But folks, in 2016, with Karimov's death, this all came to an abrupt end. And now the question is, has a new era really begun? Well, listen up. Change or no change? Check out this headline. Uzbekistan emerges from isolation with $1 billion bond sale. That was from Bloomberg. In February 2019, the government of Uzbekistan made its first bond issue in the international market by issuing euro bonds worth $1 billion in London. And you know what? International investors practically snatched them out of their hands. The demand was eight times greater than the offer. The question is, what investor in his or her right mind would lend money to a government like this? Well, dear viewer, the fact is that after Karimov's death, his number two, the Prime Minister, Shavkat Mirskalev, rose to the role of president. This came as no surprise, as he had been Karimov's Prime Minister. However, to everyone's surprise, Mirskalev announced a lot of reforms that would open the country to the world. For example, he improved relations with his neighbors, prohibited forced labor in the cotton harvest, purged the high-ranking officials from the security services that had led the repression, freed a lot of political prisoners and removed 18,000 people from a government blacklist that had prevented them from traveling or being able to work. Just by improving relations with their neighbors and reopening border crossings, trade between Uzbekistan and the rest of the Central Asian countries has increased by 50% since 2017. That's just two years. And that's not all. Most of the changes, by far, have occurred in economic policy. The new government has eliminated capital controls and most price controls. It has announced the privatization of most public companies. It has decreased tariffs and given free reign to Uzbek companies to export without having to ask the government for permission or pay them a fee. Oh, 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 oh. They've also announced lower taxes for Uzbeks and particularly for companies that invest in the country. This is basically the opposite of what Mahri has done. There's a president that should take lessons from the president of Uzbekistan. And as the country's officials have traditionally been very corrupt, the finance minister, Mr. Kukharov, has decreed a three-year moratorium on all company inspections while the government improves its processes and decreases bureaucracy. Interesting move. The point is that these are all reasons that the forecasts for the country's future have improved so much and so that the government can now issue debt in the London market without investors fleeing. Now, does this mean that Uzbekistan has been completely transformed? Well, no, not at all. Uzbekistan, although better now than with Karimov, still has a repressive government, censorship still exists, and free elections are still not in sight. And of course, the new president still has a huge amount of control over everything that happens in the country. Let's just say that the process has kind of just started. But folks, we're just going to have to wait and see how things play out with time. And we're going to be watching very closely because you can't say that it's not an interesting story. So I do hope you enjoyed this episode of the Visual Politic Podcast. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll be back real soon with another episode of this show. See you later.